Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. We often read or hear about huge lawsuits that run into the millions of dollars. They make the headlines. But sometimes the disagreement is about only a few thousand. And Missouri has a system that handles those types of lawsuits up to $5,000. It's a system in which lawyers are optional and the usual rules of evidence don't apply. It's the small claims court system, and it's used by hundreds, if not thousands, of Missourians each year. This system was designed to settle uncomplicated disputes, but there are rules that might seem to the participants to be a little complicated. We're going to explain today how the small claims courts work. With us is Associate Circuit Judge Corey Moon of Canton, who serves in a judicial circuit in Northeast Missouri. Before becoming a judge, he was the Knox County prosecutor. He played an important role in helping revise the Missouri Small Claims Court handbook that's available to all members of the public. Welcome to the program, Judgment. Thank you for having me this morning. Judge, I recall when small claims courts were created back in the 70s, I think, why did we go to a small claims court system? What, why do we have it? I think the reason that the small claims court was created by the legislature was to make courts accessible for people who had small disputes, people who had minor disputes that didn't necessarily need the assistance of an attorney and that could litigants could come in and present their case to a judge without a lot of discovery or any formal process because they were so uncomplicated. We'll get into this in more detail later, but that doesn't mean that these courts are places where people just walk in the door and say, Judge, I want to sue my neighbor for $45 for chopping down my tree or something like that. It's, it's a little right. bit more complicated than that. It is. And each county circuit clerk has forms that they give to participants or litigants. They can walk in and get those forms from the clerk and fill them out and present them to the court and then notice is given to the other party, and the case goes from there. Now, you hear some of these cases. Do you hear very many of them? I haven't heard very many yet, but I have seen some as an attorney also. On this podcast, we've talked oftentimes about the differences between civil law and criminal law. So just to clarify, small claims court is just civil proceedings, right? So if I think that my neighbor or someone that I'm in a dispute with should be charged with a crime— that's not the place for this. That's right. This is a civil proceeding, and criminal proceedings would be separate from that. Up to $5,000. Yes. So the amount that can be claimed is up to $5,000, and that does not include the cost or interest that the party is claiming. Yeah, we'll work, we'll work our way through this a little bit later to, to find out just how all the mechanics of this are. But um, there are responsibilities that people have in addition to filling out a form if they want to file some kind of an action in small claims court. Right. Um, so if they want to file a small claims case, they will uh, fill out their petition. They'll file that with the court, and then they're responsible for providing notice to the other party. Is notice what we see on TV as being, like, served, or is it more simple like that? Can they just send, like, a certified letter? It could be sent by a certified letter, but it could also be served. And there are costs that go along with that that the uh, plaintiff has to pay. So if I file one of these suits, is it my responsibility then to take whatever documents I have and go to the other person and say, here, see you in court? Personally serve it yourself? Yeah. Yeah. No, you don't have to do that. Okay. Uh, you can you can send it by certified mail, or you can have the sheriff serve that, but, and that would be in, in accordance with the Supreme Court rules. Yeah, but the, the sheriff would be paid a fee to do that. That's right. So the plaintiff would be responsible for paying the service fee or the certified mail fee, and they also have to pay the cost to now, file the action. Now, can they recover those costs later in the judgment? Yes, they okay. can. So it's $5,000 plus the costs of right. doing this. Right. Okay. Those would be included in the court costs. Yeah. Are there steps that individuals should maybe take before they decide to go and file out a fill out a petition and sue whoever they are thinking about suing? Um, it, do you see this as sort of like a last resort if you've not been able to amicably settle a dispute outside of court? Well, putting my lawyer hat on, generally it's always better if you can try to work things out before going to court because, you know, that can cause some animosity, especially if it's a neighbor or a friend. 
you want to try to to resolve those issues without court action because that can give people hard feelings sometimes. Based on your experience in the few cases you've seen so far and what you've learned from others in your position, what are the most common kinds of things that people sue about? Generally, it's uh, they've made some sort of agreement, whether in writing or just orally. You know, they wanted to buy something or provide a service and then the item wasn't what they uh, thought it was or uh, the service wasn't provided how it should have been provided. Those are probably the most common issues. Do we get up to the $5,000 limit very often or are we frequently less than that? It's it's usually less than the $5,000. Who sets that $5,000 limit? Is that something that the court chooses or the legislature or or how does that determine that it's that $5,000 cap? So the amount of $5,000 for the small claims court was set by the legislature. Now, I suppose once you get into the uh, lawsuit itself, the plaintiff is the one claiming the damages. So they have the burden to prove what their damages actually are. And if they have a case where they're claiming $5,000, but it ends up, for some reason, they prove that their damages are more than that, they're still going to be capped at that $5,000 because of the statute. You know, I can see how something like this could become a tool of harassment. You sue somebody right and left for $1,000 or $1,500 or whatever. And are there limits on, on to, to try to keep that from happening? Yes, there are. There's actually a statute that uh, prevents anyone from filing more than 12 of these small claims cases in a year. Against anybody, not right. just the same person. Right. So one a month, Bob. So it's not going to be a get-rich-quick scheme No, for somebody. And we'll talk about collecting on judgments later in the program. Yeah. In your position, you're limited, though, in what you can actually order done, are you not? So the judge's responsibility is to hear the case and then enter a judgment either in favor of the plaintiff or uh, finding for the defendant and not ordering anything. Okay. But you're not responsible for forcing somebody to actually pay the judgment, are you? That's correct. How do I go about that if I still win the lawsuit and my neighbor doesn't want to give me any money? Well, uh, there are some options that you have. If you get a judgment against the person, first you could try to get them to voluntarily pay that. If they do not voluntarily pay that, the normal uh, collection practices would be available to you. The normal collection methods would be available, such as garnishing on their bank account or their wages. And to do that, you would have to go to the clerk's office. They could provide you the forms to fill out. And if you go file those forms with the clerk's office, you can go through the garnishment process. However, that process can be complicated and may sometimes require the assistance of an attorney to yeah. help. So these courts, even though one of the goals is to be able to take legal action and not have to hire an attorney, it's a good idea to at least talk things over with an attorney before you file an action like this? I would say in some cases. Some cases are going to be more straightforward than, than others, but there may be uh, questions that you have about whether this would be the correct remedy for you or whether you should file some kind of other action. Because these, I don't know if we've touched on this, but these cases are only for money judgments. You can't get any other type of relief in small claims courts. So I can't get somebody's car, pickup truck? or Right. Yeah, so if there's a dispute over property, then... The correct avenue would not be small claims court. That would be some kind of other action. Now, if I run up some expenses in trying to collect my judgment. Are those tacked on to the judgment? Those may be recovered in the additional proceeding, like a garnishment okay. proceeding. Okay. So I'm not out, out of money, out of my pocket, trying to collect whatever I win. Up front, though. Up front. Yeah. You could, yeah. Yeah, you up could front. potentially yeah. be if you end up not collecting anything, obviously. But In Missouri, lawyers are able to do what is called limited scope representation. So that means that they don't enter an appearance in court for someone, but they can right. review the documents, that sort of thing. Is that maybe a good touch point for someone who's in small claims court if they're wanting a second opinion? Yeah, that's always an option if you seek out an attorney who's willing to take a look at those forms uh, before filing to 
help you make sure that you have all your ducks in a row. And then um, I want to talk about the role of the circuit clerk. I think a lot of people maybe they've heard of their county clerk, but they might not realize that there's also a clerk for their local circuits um, when it comes to the judicial system. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the unique role of the clerk in helping citizens with the small claims process? Sure. So the circuit clerk is responsible for providing the forms for uh, small claims participants and sometimes helping them fill those out. But the clerk is sometimes limited in what they can do to help out with participants. As I understand, small claims courts deal only in cash, money. Right. You can't get property from somebody or a landlord can't take you to small claims court and get an order to throw you out of your apartment or house. Correct. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So eviction processes would be a totally separate legal action that someone would have to take. And and same with property, that would be a separate action. So if I fall $5,000 behind in my rent, my landlord can sue me for $5,000, but my landlord can't ask the judge to throw me out of my apartment if I don't pay. Right. I would imagine that small businesses might find themselves in small claims court, that they might be, you know, when talking about the types of cases that come before you. Are there suggestions putting, you know, putting on your lawyer hat that you might have for small businesses and how to be prepared or how to avoid small claims? As a judge, I can't really give legal advice, so I want to be careful on what I say about that. But I would say generally it's always a good idea to have stuff in writing and make sure that they know who they're doing business with before they enter into an agreement with someone. I think generally that's the best way to avoid having to end up in court, as that would be for anyone. If I file a lawsuit against somebody in a small claims court, can they countersue me? They can. Well, so this is a dispute that couldn't be resolved outside of court, and now it becomes a dispute that's not being resolved in the court. Is a judge being then put in a position of deciding which side is the right one? Absolutely. So if a person comes in, files a petition, and becomes the plaintiff in a small claim suit, once the defendant gets notice of that, then they can go in and file what's called a counterclaim against the plaintiff for either the same transaction or they could file a counterclaim for maybe something else that they had a dealing with with the plaintiff. My first impression of small claims courts is was that this is a way to quickly resolve some dispute that can't be done. But right. with counterclaims and so on, this actually can drag out, can't it? It could. It's still less complicated and less time-consuming than a typical lawsuit because there is no process called discovery in small claims court. And discovery is where the parties have to share information back and forth between one another and share their evidence with one another. That's not a process that's allowed in small claims court, but typically the discovery process is what makes a lawsuit take, could potentially take a long time. But if I'm going to file a lawsuit that you're going to hear, I have to provide some kind of documentation to justify what I'm doing. And I suppose the defendant could look at that as as kind of a self-discovery thing that I have to do, that he can use. But, But I have to make sure that I have documentation that gives you something to work with. Yeah, generally, if you're filing a, some kind of legal action, you want to make sure that you have any evidence that you might have, you want to make sure that you bring with you to court to show the judge that you're right and that the other side is the one that is at fault in the case or is liable to you for some damages. And sometimes in lawsuits, there isn't any documentation, but your testimony is also considered evidence. And that's something that the judge could go off of. But it's always better if you have something in writing that can back up your... Otherwise, it's kind of a he said, he said right. thing. And it's the judge's job then to make a determination on who's more credible. If it's over services or a product, is are photos something that is helpful for you to bring with you to court to to show maybe something wasn't completed in the way that it was that you envisioned or thought you had agreed upon. Yeah. Anytime you can get photographic evidence to prove your point, that's always something that the court can consider. Text messages are very good evidence. 
maybe you have a case where there's been social media postings about your case or messages through social media apps, any kind of written communication that you can provide would be helpful. Excellent. So instead of discovering and sharing all this information before, if I understand correctly, both parties then bring everything they have and kind of show all their cards at the same time in small claims court. Yep, that's right. And also if they have other witnesses who can testify on their behalf. Well, you can have witnesses in small claims court then. You can, yeah. Okay. When a case comes before the judge, each party would testify. They might have their witnesses testify. And the judge actually has the opportunity to ask parties and witnesses questions in small claims courts, which isn't typical in other cases. In your experience, how long do hearings last? Usually between half an hour and an hour, but it really depends on the complexity of the dispute. But being small claims court, generally it's not too complex, so it doesn't take a whole lot of time. I found the legal system requires a certain precision in in wording and in in, in other facets. And if I... want to file an affidavit of some kind. How precise do I have to be in identifying the person that I am suing? I can't just say Bob Jones. I have to say Robert Q. Jones Jr. or something like that, right? Right. You need to be very specific in naming the party that you're suing as well as making sure that you have, you want to have their correct legal name. You want to have an address and a phone number, any information that you can provide about that person is going to be helpful. And if you sue a business, do you have to get the corporate owner's name and and identification too? Yes. Any information on a business, also the same principle applies. You want to have their correct legal name, what kind of entity it is. And you can find out all that information about businesses from the Secretary of State. Yeah, they have a web page, I think. Incorporated. Right. Are there filing fees? So if I go to the circuit clerk's office complete the form, decide to proceed with filing this, um, are there fees that I pay up front or is that something that's later determined um, based on whoever wins the case? There is generally a filing fee that you have to pay up front. However, in Missouri, we have a process that you can follow to file as a poor person, which if you can fill out the affidavit and show the court that you don't have the funds to pay that filing fee up front, the judge could decide that fee would not be owed when you file the case. If I live in one county and the defendant lives in another county, where do I file the lawsuit? In small claims court, as in other cases, you have to make sure that you file your case in the correct county. And there are five options for filing small claims cases. You can file in the county where the defendant lives in the county where the transaction occurred, in the county where the plaintiff lives and the defendant may be found, the county where the defendant has an office if the defendant is a business, or the county where the registered agent of a business is. What's a registered agent? A registered agent is a person or business that is registered with a secretary of state's office and their job is to accept service on behalf of a business. Like a lawyer. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Lawyers often serve as registered agents. When I think of what we've been describing here, it reminds me a little bit of like the original court shows, like the People's Court and that sort of thing, where it's a judge talking with the two parties and anyone else that they bring to court. I'm wondering, was that likely based on a small claims court? I know you don't know the direct answer to that, but is that I mean, sort they, of the kind of feel that yeah, a small claims court has? Yeah, it's a very informal summary proceeding. So if you've ever watched Judge Judy or Judge Wapner or any of the <laughs> any of the famous uh, judge shows, that's that is a little bit about uh, you know how small claims court seems. Now these shows are all small claims, aren't they? I've I've never seen a great big. I, believe I don't so. watch the things very much, yeah. but yeah. the times I've tuned in, they're all, they all strike me, first of all, as being petty disagreements. Right. But second, uh, there's not a whole lot of money involved here. No, not, not generally. So. Yeah. Now, how, how similar to those courts is your court? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm quite a Judge Judy or uh, anyone like that. No lights and cameras. Yeah. No, no. It's uh, no, no flashy bailiff. Yeah. yeah, no interviews in the hallway afterwards. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe I don't know. I'm is, usually still up on the bench. Yeah. Is there a, is there an age limit? Are, can you be? Are you? You have to be 
21 or whatever to file one of these lawsuits? So if you are under the age of 18, you can still file a claim, but you have to bring someone over the age of 18 with you to the courthouse when you file your claim and when you go to trial. And this would be, this person would be called a next friend, typically they're referred to as. And the clerk would have the forms and procedure for you to follow to file that. Does that have to be a guardian or just anyone that's there to help represent you? It could be a guardian. It's set out by statute who can be a next friend, generally a parent guardian. Is it a good idea to go to the courthouse to fill out your petition as opposed to mailing something in to the clerk? I would say that is the most sure way to make sure that it gets to where it's going. You know, things can get lost in the mail. or And is done correctly. Right. Yeah. They can they can uh, look over it for you and make sure you're, you have all the information. If there's anything that you need to add, they can let you know that before the case gets filed. So I know in the small claims handbook that you helped revise that's available to all Missouri residents who are interested in this type of case. We included some links to forms. So do you think it's a good idea that if you're thinking about this, that before you go in to fill one out, that maybe you take some time and look through the form online and see what all information you might need to to have readily available to file? Yeah, I'm a person who likes to be prepared. So uh, I think that generally helps when you know what you're getting into before you actually go through the process. The handbook is pretty comprehensive, though it doesn't substitute for advice from an attorney. It does give you a very in-depth overview of the process, and it actually includes the forms that you would see. Uh, So it includes a petition in small claims court that you can review and contains all the information that you would need before you file your case. And just a little sidebar here, that small claims court handbook is available at org, or they can call the Missouri Bar and ask one to be mailed to them. Does the person being sued very often refuse to show up in court? I don't know that I would use the phrase very often, but that is an option if someone is being sued in small claims court, if they feel that they don't want to contest the case, they could choose not to show up and the court could enter what's called a default judgment against them. Okay. We've talked about filing the suit. We haven't talked yet about being the target of one of these lawsuits. What happens if somebody sues me in small claims court? What am I expected to do or how, how, how should I react? So if you are sued in small claims court, you will actually receive a summons that contains about one page of instructions or information on the back of it. And I would say the worst thing you could do is nothing, generally. (laughs) So I would make sure that you read the petition carefully, make sure you understand what the person is claiming against you. And the options that are on the summons are... I just touched on this. You could choose not to oppose the claim. And in that case, you could either contact the plaintiff and try to reach some kind of agreement, or you could choose not to show up to the hearing, in which case the judge may enter default judgment against you. If you want to oppose the claim, you could show up at the hearing. In that case, you would want to bring all your evidence, including any books, papers, or witnesses, to establish any defenses you may have to the claim. You can request subpoenas from the clerk to have witnesses called to testify on your behalf. You could file a counterclaim at any time before the hearing if it arises out of the same transaction or occurrence as the plaintiff's claim. And again, you can get that form from the clerk, the circuit clerk. If your counterclaim does not arise from the same transaction or occurrence, you can file it at any time within 10 days after you're served with process and before the date of trial. Who sets the date for the trial? Typically the court will. But does, does the court have any responsibility to check with the defendant to see if that date is a date when that person's available? No, that would be on the defendant to contact the court to let them know if they need a continuance for some reason. And also, I should mention, if the person being sued is a member of the armed forces, they should 
contact the court immediately upon receiving the summons to let them know. Because in some cases, you may have a member of the armed forces on active duty who isn't available, and they have certain protections under the law when they're being sued. They probably should get in touch with their commanding officer or superior, too, let them know that this is happening, I would think. Possibly, but for sure they should contact the court. It seems that the without having the discovery portion, um, that the small claims court process could actually move uh, pretty swiftly. Uh, is, is there, um, I know that all circuits vary based on their timelines and judges' schedules and availability and the number of cases filed, but what is a, um, is there a typical time range that someone could expect? Um, you know, are we looking at a year, or a few months? I would say generally a couple of months. Um, I don't know that you can say for certain because, like you said, all courts are different. If it were in my court, generally I would try to set it probably within a month or so just to allow time for the person to get served with uh, summons. Um, And then, you know, parties can sometimes have reasons that they can't be in court on the date that the court sets for the hearing so that could be continued. But uh, generally, I think the courts try to resolve these cases as quickly as they can. As a judge, do you enjoy the informal or the less formal nature of the small claims court? Yeah, I think it always makes it easier when, you know, you're not worried about the rules. The parties aren't being held to the standard of an attorney. They're just up there to give their case to you and say their piece, you know, say what they need to say, and then um, the court can make a decision. So I think it is a lot easier in, in that it's informal and you don't have to worry about all the questions being asked and cross-examination and, you know, the, the whole procedure. Yeah, you're not trying to prove a case to a jury. Right. That that's, makes a difference in how you go about things. Right. There are no juries in small claims court. <laughs> Do uh, you it, ever feel that um, your role as a judge also maybe feels as though it's uh, a counselor, too, trying to mend some of these bridges? <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, at the end of the day— you don't want any hard feelings, though there's uh, not a lot you can do as a judge to help that, but you can help the parties kind of, I think, reach a resolution in some cases. Sure. Based on, again, your experience and the experience of other judges, do most of these cases, a lot of these cases come out of family disagreements or neighbor disagreements or business disagreements? Where where do most of these things seem to originate? I would say you probably touched on all of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that there's a, you know, they they come from all, all sorts of different types of situations. Mm-hmm. There's not any one type that... You know, and how, small claims and how, how do you prepare for each of these hearings? Do you look at the materials first before you go in, or how much do you study those? And, yeah, generally all the court has is the petition and counterclaim, if there is a counterclaim. So what I typically do is review the pleadings, which would be the petition, and make sure that I understand what they're claiming so that if there is something that I feel needs to be expounded upon, I can be prepared to ask about it. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge? Legalese. When I was a young legal aid lawyer in another state about a half century ago, I helped a client file a small claims case for a few hundred dollars. It was a neighborhood dispute of some sort. When I showed up at the court with my client, the judge would not let me speak. No lawyers, he said. This was a conciliation court, so I sat and watched. The judge listened as my client told him what his grievance was, and then the judge listened as the defendant told his side of the story. Along with listening carefully, the judge asked these combatants questions, seeking areas that they agreed upon and information he would need to make a decision in the event that the parties were unable to agree. He made some attempt to reach a compromise, and failing that, the judge decided the case. Small claims courts today in Missouri have some forms for people to fill out to file a case. There are a few formal procedures, no complicated rules of evidence and such things, 
just tell your story to the judge after you've filed your papers and had them served, and the person on the other side will tell their story and the judge will decide. Not exactly like TV's Judge Duty, but you get the idea. Today's podcast discussion is a nice summary of what you need to do to get relief or defend yourself in a small claims court, which is part of your local circuit court. These small claims courts began to spring up around the country in the 1960s and 1970s. Missouri's small claims court law was enacted in 1976, along with and at the same time as major revisions were taking place in the Missouri court system. And we have been working to improve these courts ever since. But 1976 or the 1960s is not when the history of small claims begins. They began, it seems to me, after we phased out and abolished the justice of peace courts that have been with us from the frontier beginnings of our society. In small communities and even in larger neighborhoods, there was a need for informal resolution of disputes among neighbors. The regular courts were difficult to navigate without a lawyer, and small claims do not justify the expense of hiring a lawyer. And in simpler times, lawyers were scarce. As the 19th century frontier receded and our society became more highly organized into the 20th century, real judges and lawyers, those who thought themselves better because they had law degrees, often derided the justices of the peace. These justices of the peace mostly were not lawyers, had little formal training, and were viewed by the legal profession as quite inferior to regular courts. The Constitution of 1875 in Missouri called for justices of the peace to be gradually eliminated But when states like Missouri, that is most states, phased out the justices of the peace, those local judges were missed. There remained a need to resolve small disputes, a way of keeping the peace on a very local level. Suing your neighbor before a justice of the peace, like doing so now in a small claims court, provides a means of dispute resolution far superior to using a baseball bat to resolve a dispute with your neighbor, your tenant, or your landlord. Though we do not have the word conciliation, In the title of our small claims courts, there is a fair amount of reconciling going on. While justices of the peace and magistrates were perhaps untrained or unread in the law, they did their best to resolve disputes, solemnize marriages, and thus helped society to function. When the justices of the peace were phased out, we still needed a place for small disputes to be resolved, and the more highly trained magistrates fit the bill for a while. It seems to me not accidental that the fall of the justices of the peace and the crowding of local magistrate courts and the merger of them into the circuit courts in the 1970s was followed by the rise of small claims courts. People with small disputes, now characterized as having a value of less than $5,000, need a place to go that is not expensive or violent. Small claims courts also show the public a face of justice when most are not likely to experience larger and higher courts. Where does the public in our modern society see justice in real courts? For example, the Missouri Supreme Court hears and decides about 100 cases a year, followed by written opinions. Small claims cases in the local circuit courts in the most recent year reported over 5,000 cases. When the Supreme Court hears cases in Jefferson City, there may be 20 or 40 people in the courtroom observing, other than the staff of the court. By contrast, there are at least two persons involved in each of these 5,000 or so local small claims cases. That means that many, many more people come looking for justice in small claims courts than in the highest court of our state. There is a larger lesson here than the mere resolution of a dispute between landlord and tenant, or between neighbors or merchants and their customers. The lesson is this. These small claims proceedings have a very large role to play in how our society is to function. They offer a nonviolent way of resolving our differences, differences that are inevitably the result of living in communities large and small, I sometimes wish we would again call these conciliation courts, as I see the frictions and turmoil of our complex post-frontier society. It seems to me that we need to do a lot of conciliating as we struggle to maintain civility. Courts have a role to play in helping these so-called minor disputes, and so do schools, churches, and other community institutions. People seek help in courts because they see them as available, fair, and I hope understandable. These courts apply the law, and when the law seems insufficient or unknown, they apply common sense. When you go to small claims court, you may not get the right answer, but you will get an answer. When I first observed the conciliation court decades ago, I realized that win or lose, the parties received a gift. They were listened to, they were understood, and they left with their dignity. 
and one of them left with a piece of paper saying that the other guy owed him money. So just because a claim is small does not mean that it is unimportant. This is Mike Wolf saluting these courts that help us get along. Legalese. We've talked a lot about the procedural aspects of small claims court, but I'd like to talk about what expectations participants should have. So, um, you know, unfortunately, most of people's perceptions of America's judicial system is based on whatever their favorite uh, courtroom TV drama or comedy is. Um, So when they come to the courtroom, uh, what should kind of be the mindset or expectations of both the plaintiffs and the defendants? I would say that both parties should be ready to proceed when they go to court that day. It's always a good plan to show up early, uh, as you would for anything. Some of the courthouses in Missouri, you have to plan extra time to get through security. I would say most of the courthouses, I hope, have some kind of security. Once the parties arrive, they should make sure that they get to the right courtroom, especially in the larger jurisdictions where there may be several divisions. Uh, Some of the jurisdictions are so large, they have divisions that are specifically small claims divisions. So those are the only types of cases that those courts will hear. Once you get there, you should get situated in the courtroom in a place that you can hear because you don't want to miss your case being called. Judges like punctuality, especially this judge. <laughs> if, you are, uh, if you're late to court, there's a possibility that your case could be dismissed. If you're the plaintiff or the court could enter a judgment against you if you're the defendant. When your case is called, you should wait for direction from the court. And the court should explain how the process will work and explain how the trial will proceed. All judges are different, so there may be a slight difference in the procedure. Uh, You should listen carefully to the judge's directions and make sure that you have all of your things organized. You don't want to have just a big binder of papers and show up and you're shuffling through everything. That's generally not a good look and takes a lot of time. Um, So make sure that your materials are organized and make sure that you have your witnesses ready to go and ready to proceed. I looked at the handbook the other day, and one thing that I noticed was a paragraph that said, uh, you must choose the correct court in which to file your claim. What do you mean by that? I mean, small claims court is a small claims court. (laughs) I'll have to find that, honestly. (laughs) Do you know where that was, Bob? I don't know the page. Uh, it says you must choose the correct court in which to file your claim. If you file in the wrong court, you will have to refile in the right court. Now, I, the, okay. The, yeah. So yeah. that's probably talking about venue. So you want to. we touched on it earlier. Yeah. You want to make sure that you file in the correct county because if you file in a county where you shouldn't have filed it, then you would have to file in another county and you could have to pay another filing fee and yeah. Everything like that. I think so. there were five options there. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it, you don't. I, I assume the clerk would head you off if you if you just filed with a circuit court as opposed to a small claims court. They would, the clerk would pick that up pretty quickly and say you don't want to do that. The circuit clerks generally are pretty good about um, letting letting people know that, but sometimes you know things yeah. get through when they shouldn't. Yeah. Is there once you come down with your judgment? Um, is there any kind of a document that the parties are required to sign uh, that indicates that uh, they recognize what the judgment is and the defendant, if that person owes money, somehow agrees to pay that? Is there any, is there an agreement to pay that comes from the hearing? Some judges will have the parties sign a judgment, though not all judges would. And in some cases, if there is a judgment entered, the parties could enter into an agreement to pay afterwards as a way to try to uh, resolve, you know, the the issue of payment so that the plaintiff wouldn't execute on the judgment. It's like if you are the defendant, you lose, and you owe $3,000, and you don't have that right then, they could just agree between themselves, the plaintiff and defendant, on a payment schedule rather right. than coming back to the court. Right. Okay. Or that's where we get into garnishment. Right. Or the, some kind the, of a schedule so of garnishment. The, the defendant could say, 
I'll pay a hundred dollars a month, the plaintiff could accept that and then the plaintiff wouldn't have to go through the whole garnishment process and the additional fees and things to accomplish that. If you're a defendant in that type of situation, is it important for you to sh- have documentation of when you've made those payments? Like, or you don't want to just like hand someone $100 in cash each month and not have any right. record of it. Right. Yeah. Generally, you want to have some kind of record that you've made a payment and the plaintiff has a responsibility when the judgment is satisfied to file what's called a satisfaction of judgment with the court. So that way the court knows there was this judgment out, it's been paid, nothing else is owed on that judgment. So then it's all resolved and that done. That is done at that okay. point, yeah. Can a judgment be appealed? Yes, a judgment can be appealed. Or two. You actually have 10 days to file a notice of appeal, and that actually would go to a different... Uh, associate circuit or circuit judge. Okay. So instead so, of going to a higher court, it just goes to an, another parallel. Another judge, judge. in the okay. circuit, essentially, yeah. yeah. So the uh, first small claims hearing is kind of a, uh, we we say in the legal world, kind of a free bite at the apple. You get a, one chance to prove your case. If you lose, then you get a what's called a new trial, a trial de novo, and that would be tried to the other judge. However, this trial would be more formal. It would include the rules of evidence, discovery, and all that. So far more complicated. Right. So that's that's, but, that's an impetus to take the original judgment and, and stay with it. Well, if you're, if you're the plaintiff and, and yeah. you really want that money, then yeah. you'll probably want to file a trial de novo. But you get two chances. So. <laughs> Anything we haven't covered uh, that folks need to know about when it comes to small claims courts? That because uh, a lot of you know a lot of folks are out there thinking, "Well, I'm going to sue somebody," but they don't want to hire a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want to pay that much money, and they don't want to accept a judgment that forty percent goes to somebody else, or thirty percent, whatever the fee might be. Are people frustrated by the legal system sometimes when they have to come to a small claims court? I think people will always have some sort of frustration with the legal system, especially if they're on the losing side. But generally, small claims court, with it being such uncomplicated disputes, uh, you know, this is one of the better things about the legal system in that I think it gives people more access because they don't have to have an attorney. They don't have to pay a bunch of money to get their day in court, so to speak. You've been in this job now for just a couple of years, so you don't have a whole lot of experience, but you have enough. Can you think of any any tinkering that needs to be done with small claims court law or small claims court procedures? Uh, we've had the small claims court for, what did we say, about 43 years yeah, or so. Like, and, something like that. Um, so I think it works pretty well, and, and like I said, I think it gives people uh, more access to the court and that they don't have to spend a bunch of money to be heard by a judge. And so I, I think it's a good process and um, it's a good way for people to be involved with the legal system without, you know, having to deal with a, a complex mm-hmm. uh, case and a we, case that yeah. lasts a long time. We've covered a lot of ground here on this, mm-hmm. this program for this uh, this particular type of, of justice system. Um, have we left out anything important? There are limits on times people can file suits. So there's somewhat of a time limit. And it's called the statute of limitations, and I think that's important to cover. Uh, generally, when you're dealing with money damages, most of the time the statute of limitations would be five or ten years. But there are going to be cases where you might have a question about when you should file your claim. And in those cases, I would say it'd be prudent to talk to an attorney about whether you're out of time or whether you need to file some other kind of action. Do you believe the small claims court process, you're talking about the the positives of it, do you believe that it allows individuals who are having disputes to kind of have it resolved and move on from it instead of letting it fester you know i yeah i guess growing up i remember times when you're like oh i had a you know instead of someone saying i had a bad experience with that business or Mm -hmm. you know this dispute and kind of having a long-term grudge it seems like it might be a way to 
to get things done and settled once and for all. Yeah, I think it's a quick and easy way to do that. You know, with COVID, the courts have been very backed up. But with these small claims cases, you know, they don't take a lot of time, so they generally get through quicker. And I think that is a big part of helping people to uh, have their say and, and just move on from the problem. I think that helps them out mentally a lot, just to have that off of their plate and be done with the dispute and know that they were heard whether or not they won or lost the case. They, they know that they tried and hopefully a positive experience with the justice system. Yeah, I've heard the phrase friendly suit. People say, well, we disagree. Let's just have a judge take, look at it and decide what the proper sure. thing is. Is that, is that what, do you get a lot of that? I, I, I don't know that we get a lot of it, but I like to think that um, people are that positive about mm-hmm. lawsuits. Um, you know, ultimately, that's what the court's job is, is just to decide who's right and who's wrong. And at the end of the day, if, as long as the parties put their best foot forward, then they they should be happy about the fact that, you know, that we have a country and a system where you get that opportunity to have your say and, and hopefully have a fair process because that's what it's all about. Yeah. Before we go, this program series is focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it. Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more. If you spend hours studying the Federalist Papers, the collection of essays written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, looking for an explanation of the importance of small claims courts, you aren't going to find much. First of all, small claims courts are largely a product of the 20th century. But even beyond that, some would argue that these lower courts, hearing cases involving relatively small amounts, are just not important in our constitutional system. This argument would be wrong. The lack of attention paid by the Federalist Papers to lower courts should not be seen as evidence of their irrelevance. Much of the Federalist Papers was devoted to aspects of our constitutional system that were new and needed considerable explanation and justification. By the time that the Federalist Papers were written, the kind of work done by lower courts was well established. We had come to see that there needed to be a forum in which average people could state their case and have their dispute heard and resolved by a fair and dependable tribunal. The alternative to having courts like these to resolve these cases was having members of our society engage in violence to settle their disputes. This was something we had to avoid, and thus lower courts were an essential component of our existence as a civil society with a commitment to the rule of law. As a result, the authors of the Federalist Papers did not devote significant space to addressing these lower courts because their role was already firmly established and accepted. While these courts did not receive extensive attention, Alexander Hamilton would acknowledge their importance in our constitutional system. In Federalist 17, Hamilton wrote that nothing has a greater impact on the people's view of government than the ordinary daily administration of justice. Let that extraordinary statement sink in. Hamilton is arguing that there is not anything that has a more substantial influence on the way people see government than what happens in our courthouses on a daily basis. It's easy to misread Hamilton's statement and to interpret it as saying nothing has a greater impact on the people's view of the judiciary than the daily administration of justice. However, Hamilton was not limiting his statement to the people's view of the courts. Hamilton was saying that nothing has a larger role in shaping the people's view of government as a whole than the daily administration of justice. Thus, 
From the perspective of Hamilton's assertion, given their importance in the daily administration of justice, small claims courts and tribunals like them play a substantial role in shaping the people's view of government. Some may be skeptical of Hamilton's argument and ask, wouldn't the people's view of government be shaped by major players, those with tremendous power and a national reputation? Not necessarily. The more we consider Hamilton's assertion, the more wisdom his remark reflects. Hamilton knew that very few people would interact with members of the legislative branch. Even fewer would have anything to do with officials from the executive branch. However, chances were good that individuals in our society would find themselves in our courthouses, interacting with members of the judiciary. Hamilton knew that human beings tend to be influenced by direct experience. And where are most Americans having a direct experience with government? In the Oval Office? No. In the Speaker's Chambers? No. Most Americans will interact with government in places like small claims courts. According to Hamilton, their experience in these courts is not only going to shape their view of the judiciary, but also their view of government as a whole. It comes down to this. We should not dismiss the importance of small claims courts. While the amount in question may be small, the number of people involved with these courts is quite large. And when they go into these courts, the people are not just developing an impression of small claims courts. According to the wisdom of Hamilton, they are forming a view of our government. We want to thank everybody for being with us for this edition of Is It Legal 2? And we're especially thankful for Associate Circuit Judge Corey Moon for helping us understand how small claims court works. Thank you all for having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Enjoy the conversation. As we mentioned earlier, there are some resources you might want to check out if you want to explore using the small claims court. You can download a copy of the Missouri Small Claims Court Handbook. Just go to Missouri Lawyers Help all one word, MissouriLawyersHelp.org. You can also request that a hard copy of that handbook be mailed to you through that website at the same location. You can find an array of other information on various legal topics. The site provides information that will help you better understand the law because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. Again, that's MissouriLawyersHelp.org. Nothing further, Your Honor. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2, a regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us. Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal 2 podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary and the exercise of their independent judgment.